This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Information disparities. Fear as tradecraft. Jeff Richard. And voodoo. Pieces of Eight from our freebooting pals at Atlas Games is a pirate ship combat game played with coins. Minted metal coins that clink in your hand. And that's it. No board, no dice, no meeples, no colored cubes. Just coins made out of metal. To play Pieces of Eight, you hold a stack of pirate coins in your hand. That's your ship. And you hold one coin in your other hand. That's your crow's nest. Coins represent things like cutlasses, mates, barrels of grog, And the captain's monkey. Each coin has a special ability you use to attack your enemies. Your enemies being other scurvy players and their own filthy coins. When coins get blown to kingdom come, they go to the Davy Jones locker of your pants pocket. The last player with a surviving captain coin wins. One of the cool things about Pieces of Eight is that you don't need a table to play. Because of all the coins are either in your hand or in your pocket. So it's great for car trips. Or standing in line. Also a great pub game. Because if you're doing the pub right... All the little pub tables are already busy holding your pub drinks up off the pub ground. The no-table gimmick is clever, but Pieces of Eight is also a great game. For example, it won the Origins Awards Vanguard Award for Innovation in Game Design, and it was a nominee for the crazy prestigious Diana Jones Award. Designed by the worthy yet modest Jeff Tidball, who wrote this ad copy but was too shy to credit himself. How tragically Minnesotan of him. Yes, I guess we'll never know who designed this brilliant, groundbreaking game. But we do know that Atlas Games is running a limited-time clearance of Pieces of Eight coin sets right now. Each set contains enough coins for four players, and the limited-time price includes shipping and handling. Let's recap. Pieces of Eight is a pirate ship combat game played with minted metal coins. You don't need a table, so it's great for long lines, car trips, and pub gaming. It's an award-winning design for expert-certified great gaming. And right now, you can get a four-player Pieces of Eight package at a limited-time drop-everything price. Shipping and handling included. Learn more at atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-po8. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin-the-letter-p, the letter O, and the number 8. Or follow the link in the show notes. That might be best. <laughs> It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Sean Phelan asks Ken and Robin, could you discuss the use of asynchronous information among players, conveying certain info to some and not to others? Robin, the GM's note is a time-honored method in Call of Cthulhu of causing paranoia and gunplay around the table, often without any mythos involvement whatsoever. And as such, I have sort of grown up to treat it, I guess maybe with a little more kid gloves than someone who just grew up with the GM's note uh, telling the thief that there was extra gold over in that bag or whatever. Do you have useful asynchronous experience informationally? I am in general not a user of asynchronous information, although if players want to send me a note at the table, that's cool with me, but I don't do a lot of separate note sending. I think there have maybe been occasions recently where I've like sent somebody a text or something, but... In general, I think that it's something that is a 
as you suggest, a powerful technique that invokes paranoia from the other players, and it divides the players up, so it pits them against each other. So it would be something that I would be tempted to look at in terms of something that's designed around that experience, designed to have the players somewhat at odds with one another, or in an atmosphere where you're dividing and conquering through not sharing information. And so it's something that I would want to establish as part of the ground rules of a campaign from the beginning and really be sure that every time I was using that technique that I was using it for a particular purpose and using it well. So even in something where the deal is, oh, you're going off on separate missions sometimes, you're an espionage crew, you don't always know what's going on, there's going to be a certain amount of fog of war that's involved mm -hmm. with your decision making, uh, and fog of war is something that's not necessarily paranoia inducing, but even so, I think, unless there's a really great reason for using it, it is sort of a, a 200 pound gorilla at the table that some people know things and some people don't, especially if you're just going to have a thing where the first thing that player does is they go and tell the other player something. You know, they're not lost characters. Mm -hmm. They're going to go and uh, share information usually as, as much as they can. So, you know, only really use it when it really counts. And, and when you are using it, it sort of becomes an equivalent of a da-da-da-da moment on the soundtrack. <laughs> All right. What about uh, situations where uh, not necessarily that there's PvP going on, but that there are characters with individual agendas. Because that's the other thing that I find that happens a great deal, especially if I'm running something like uh, Nobilis, or you know, maybe a, 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 you might be running a mage game in which characters from different traditions have different agendas for how to approach a given problem. Uh, and that, I think, tends to be conducive to a lot of one-off, sort of short session, this is my plan, this is what's going to happen, type information, and that they would have develop their own individual chain of information. I suppose you could do it with a heavy mirror game of Knights Black Agents as well, right? That your contacts in the DGSE give you this information, you know, your choice as to whether to share it to the players or not. Do you think that that, um, because I think it provides a huge dimension for the actual story, but it, again, you know, runs some risks at the table, first of all, of distracting everyone else while you're off with the one character, and also it, you know, it can lead to PvP, even if it isn't explicitly a PvP-type moment. Do you think that the dimensionality of having multiple streams of information and letting the characters sort of run their own agendas provides a bonus? Or do you run all of those sort of transparently and everyone is just told to roleplay like they don't know that that just happened? And that's absolutely what I do. I use cut-away play a lot. And unless there's uh, some really great specific reason to withhold that from them, the other players know what's going on, even if their characters do not. And that creates dramatic irony rather than dramatic surprise surrounding information that their characters don't have. So they may know that they're in trouble after another PC has talked to a powerful patron and discussed their own fate and their own problems, but then they don't get to know that until they either somehow persuade the PC to share that information with them, or until they do entirely logical, consistent things in play that would lead to them discovering that information. And that disjuncture between what they know as players and what they know as characters can also, I think, be very powerful and evocative, and at least as evocative as just not knowing what's going on, right? Because not knowing what's going on 
is a null state, especially if, if it's a null state if you all get exiled to another room while somebody runs a scene for somebody else, or if some, the GM and the other player go off into another room, it doesn't matter which, and then you're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs and checking your phone and reading your comic book collection. I think the attention cost of that is much worse than any little sort of questions you might have on the boundary about players having information that their characters don't. And in a, assuming a group with good faith, which of course you have to do with a huge percentage of role-playing situations, I don't think that the, the benefit of ignorance is as interesting as the tantalizing fruit of knowledge that you can't quite use yet. Yeah, I, I think that if you've got a group that, that has shown that they can treat those streams of information intelligently and as a resource for, for better drama, then that's absolutely the way to go. Although I, I find that the moment of surprise, and as a GM, I get surprised, obviously, just as often as anybody else, if I'm doing it right. Um, but the moment of surprise is is another great one that I think you 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 lose by doing the sort of, like you say, more, um, I don't know, grown-up approach of everyone pretend you didn't know that. And then, because that that sudden reveal in which everyone sort of gets the, you know, the usual suspects moment, they go back and, oh, this is what he was doing during that during that time, and that's why he got that one message, and et cetera, and it all makes sense. And I find that that's a real great moment. Do you think that the loss of that high is something that you can... Uh, can you recapture that high through other means? Is it just always on you as the GM to provide that uh, surprise then uh, with the bad guy plans? I, I think the number of times when that surprise is actually going to be as interesting as, as you're currently making it sound are enough that you can just carve out those moments, even in a thing where you're almost always use my technique. If suddenly I was to, you know, say, hey, Justin, uh, come into the room and I'll talk to you for a sec. That's going to also have a big impact around the table, right? And in this case, it's like, oh, Robin doesn't normally, do what's up, right? And that will create that heightened appetite for the reveal. But you have to, I think, have a really good reason for doing that rather than just having it be your general modus operandi. Now, the general reason for doing that can be something that applies to the entire campaign. But again, I think that it would have to be something that either has a large actual PvP element, not just that you have unrelated agendas, but that you have agendas that are eventually going to collide and somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose. And that style of campaign has um, other issues that you have to very carefully manage and you have to have a high degree of, of buy-in for. Or that fog of war, which I've mentioned before, where you just accept that there's going to be a bunch of stuff happening and you really don't know what is going on. So for that one, you know, having someone go off into the other room while you run an infiltration run and you're nervously sitting in the van when the comms cut out, that could have a, a big impact. But again, I think it's the cardamom of role-playing mm, spices, yeah. <laughs> right? It's something that really is very, very noticeable and that you don't want to be cardamoming up your whole uh, game for no good reason. I think that the, the sitting in the van while that uh, run goes down is the worst possible way to do asynchronous information. I, I think that with something like that, you know, the simple fact that you can't do anything about it is, is easy to enforce at the, at the table and it's way more interesting for the player, the van player, to get to watch the run even if the van character can't watch the run. And I think that there's a million good reasons to do it, and 
very few good reasons to to separate the, the the van guy from the from the rest of the runners. Yeah, the only reason you do it is like this is the one time in the whole campaign that you do it, and it's like a big break from your normal way of doing things and therefore would have a greater impact but uh you know do it a second time and that's just would be intolerably dull yeah yeah it's it and it and the other trouble is the 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 sensation of time experienced by the players differs very much the players who are playing the the run will feel that the time is more compressed than it is the player who is not doing the run will feel the time expand and that differential can make it hard to knit them back into the group because they're their pacing and their and their story rhythm are different then, and it's hard enough to keep pacing going at the table anyway without introducing pacing discontinuities. And and so I guess for me the the time to do the asynchronous information is is in very short face to face GM conferences that take you know four or five minutes that are with one player in which they're advancing an individual character agenda as opposed to another time. To do that, and I and I and I, I will I will admit that I do that still fairly often if it's the kind of game where that kind of uh, story is is apparent. I did a lot in my Nobilis game when all of the various uh, characters had their own sort of agendas and their own sort of activities, and it maybe it's because I did it so much and so regularly with all of the players that it seemed just like another sort of rhythm of the game as opposed to a a, a special event that that made the game uh, feel worse or or disrupted the flow because the flow was actually meant to include those sorts of, of moments of, of plotting in the same way that a, a game of diplomacy involves those moments of going off and, and arguing. I'm trying to think of other instances where asynchronous information can be fun. Um, and I still think probably most of them are kind of like one-off moments that you're really underlying. One example could be, uh, let's say you're all in a situation where you're all together, but you can't communicate. For example, you are at a banquet and you're not allowed to, you know, you don't want to be caught uh, discussing your plans with one another. You all have to be interacting with the people at, of the banquet. And one of the characters has a psychic ability. They're able to read minds or see auras or whatever it is. And that could be, you know, you slip a note to the player who's capable of gleaning that extra information mm-hmm. from the scene that the other characters can't, and they can all see that the note has been passed, which would be the equivalent of them, their characters all looking over the one PC and going, oh, I can tell from his expression that he's noticed something, yes. but we he's can't... He's psychic. Yeah, yeah. so how do, we, how do we get him to tell us that in front of everybody else without everybody else noticing? And so that would be sort of an interesting dynamic that... A, isn't either fog of war or uh, PVP oriented. Can you think of other sort of special instances of asynchronous information? I think that the notion of the note for special information is is a, is a good one. I, I think that any of the sort of you know the revelation from a god or a message from from some sort of other entity to your character. But again, I, th- I think it's interesting because in my current game, one of the characters is a spy for EarthGov. And he's a psionic, and everyone knows he's a psionic, and all the players know that he's a a spy, but the characters don't. And so when EarthGov sends him, you know, orders and messages, and they have conferences, we just do it at the table, and it adds that other sense. But in terms of, you know, you detect this, you detect that, I tend to default to doing it at the table and letting that build the drama the other way. Although I can, I've, I've used the, you know, send him a note, although far more often in, in Call of Cthulhu or or another horror-based game where. The note could also say, you've been possessed by the age-old lich. Congratulations. So I, I think that another possibility for asynchronous information showing up might be a time when the character has 
has read a book or looked at a handout or something, and you're not sure what that character wants to do with it, and you feel that tactically they deserve first crack at it. So it, it's sort of the handout situation where I open the wizard's diary and you hand them, you know, a, a sheaf of notes and they're like, okay. And it's like, the time's a wasting. What do you do? What do you do? It's like, oh, I'm going to read this thing. I'm going to cast the spell. I'm going to do whatever. And that is the fun of putting all the decision making onto one character. And obviously if it's a pure investigative scenario or situation, they just pass it out. You know, the, everyone read a page of the diary and tell me if it says Lich King anywhere. But if it's in combat, and it's like, here's the diary notes, go with, go with what you can. That can add a sort of a real-time decision-making where the other players can't shout out helpful advice because they don't literally have all the information. Right, and I suppose even in combat, there's enough going on that uh, you could play with the idea of different people having different perceptions so that, you know, you could pass a note to one of the players, you know, the one who has a dark vision that, oh, you see another creature lurking in the darkness, but you would then have to say, well, what are the odds of that player not immediately just shouting out, there's a thing lurking in the dark, right? Mm -hmm. So if they're not going to do that, again, it's a lot of extra effort just for sort of a pro forma uh, play with information. Yeah, I I think that the, the first thing you should be looking at in terms of information flow in your game is you should always make sure that there's more information flowing into the game than the local economy can handle, because that's what produces all the things that we've been talking about. Agendas, surprise, options, change-ups, you know, role-playing possibility. Whereas if there's just one tiny trickle of information coming in, regardless of its channel, the, the gameplay becomes stultified and slows down, in my experience. Right. And I think you're uh, now moving into a much broader question, one that we could devote several segments to, which therefore is our cue to exit this segment. The retinal scans on the way in and the somewhat invasive pat-down on the way out, uh, sorry about that, listeners, tell us that we are once again in the top-secret confines of the Tradecraft Hut. And, Ken, this week I thought that we would find a way to talk about the ongoing Russia-Ukraine situation in a way that won't necessarily be trumped by new events between our record date and our drop date. And so I thought we would look at disinformation. Disinformation is being spread like crazy on both sides of this not even two-way, but sort of multi-way civil conflict slash land grab. And so members of uh, both the uh, Ukrainian democracy side and the Ukrainian nationalist side, and then the uh, Putin's uh, local and distant allies, on the other hand, are spreading disinformation about the others. So there's stories about reservoirs going to be poisoned or dirty bombs being made using thistle material from the uh, nearby other semi-autonomous region that doesn't actually produce thistle material. One of my favorite stories from this, in fact, is a Ukrainian journalist was warning people that the Russians had perfected mind rays, that they could they had a mobile mind ray device that could go around and uh, suppress your free will, i.e. turn you into a pro-Russian, or uh, read your mind. Uh, now, of course, uh, barring further evidence, we can assume that this is not true. Mm-hmm. But as, as a uh, student of tradecraft, Ken, what is the benefit to 
practicing this sort of fear-mongering disinformation? Well, there's there's sort of two uh, benefits. Uh, there's sort of the local benefit, which is to say the sort of thing that happens where you spread rumors that the pro-Russian uh, side are uh, running around and gonna they're going to seize all the kindergartens and uh, use the kindergartens as hostages to force everyone to um, uh, obey them. So you you create panic, you create you know a rally to the to the not kindergarten seizing side, and you sow confusion and add uh, complexity to the informational space on the battlefield, so that your theoretically more organized message to your own supporters can get through, uh, while their messages uh, of saying no, we're not going to seize the kindergarten are at the at the at the most. Adding another thing that the uh, that the Russians have to pay attention to, the pro-Russian side has to pay attention to, and ideally are messing with their actual orders to you know seize the you know middle school or whatever they ha- actually happen to be. And then obviously the other thing that that kind of disinformation does is it is part of the uh, battle space for foreign observers in the same way that when the British spread the rumors that the Kaiser's Huns were bayoneting babies in Belgium and raping nuns, that was not so much an attempt to convince Belgium that being invaded by the Kaiser was bad. They sort of got that. Right. And similarly, you've got this story from the first Gulf War about babies being left uh, on hospital floors with their incubators being stolen, which was a a big impetus to get people into Gulf War One. Right. And and the the goal in both cases was to get uh, the American people on the side of the people who were, you know, resisting these horrible baby-killing uh, monsters. And so you're, you're trying to play for that other information space. And so when and you see that most clearly when you see the Russian government uh, seeding this meme throughout the complacent European journalists that the Ukrainian government is in bed with fascists. And obviously, if you look at the actual numbers, there are, you know, you know two fascist parties or colorably fascist parties in the Ukrainian parliament, but the Ukrainian government, by and large, is, you know, simply haplessly corrupt. It's not, you know, fascist. But the Russians, by doing that, create, you know, informational war, not only in the Ukraine, where people are saying, I'm not a fascist, I'm not a fascist, get him, he's a fascist, we have to throw him out of the of the anti-Russian movement for the purposes, uh, you know, of, of local tactical advancement. Right, there's one incident where rumors were spread of a uh, an assault by Ukrainian fascists that actually brought both the Ukrainian Democratic Nationalists and the pro-Russians rushing out to uh, fight this non-existent threat, and then they almost wound up rumbling with each other. Which, again, might have been, you know, part of the goal is to spark a rumble that then creates conditions on the ground to let either the Russians go in or forces the Russians to reveal their hand before they're ready to take over the country, or that stretch of the country, uh, that commune, like they did Crimea. Uh, and so again, you you see each each of these reports is serving both the local goals, the tactical goals, if you will, and the strategic goals, which are often goals for the attention of you know Americans and Canadians and and Germans and other people who might or might not be putting pressure on their government to try and uh, stay out or get into uh, bed with the Ukraine. Right, and the local goals can then be further subdivided into demoralization. You want to demoralize your opponents and make them afraid and uncertain and also as you suggest that it's a loyalty building exercise so there's demoralization and dehumanization mm-hmm. so if you tell all of these stories about the uh, barbarity and the viciousness or even just the presence 
of your enemy, that then creates solidarity within your side and causes people who would not normally group together to do so. And you also create a, a sense of urgency. And uh, in this case, where it's sort of a nationalistic identity conflict, as well as a uh, local geopolitical co conflict, that one of the main weapons is instilling in uh, your side the same degree of identity fervor that the other side has. And that's the main sort of rallying point uh, in order to induce people to take risks and, you know, do things in favor of this whole of a greater identity rather than doing, you know, the smart thing and just keeping their heads down until the smoke clears. Now, what's interesting to me about these mind control ray rumors, and there, you saw this same sort of thing in the Iraq war, where both sides, both the Al Jazeera and the pro-Al-Qaeda uh, sort of chatter, and then also the pro-Western propaganda outfits, would talk about various sort of uh, wizard weapons or magic weapons that were being used in the Gulf. There was the rumor of a um, radioactive gold isotope bullet that could shoot through a tank, and that rumor was being spread both by the pro-Al-Qaeda side as, don't worry, you know, uh, fellow warriors for Islam, we have a golden bullet that will kill the Crusaders, and also being spread by the pro-Western side as, you know, these filthy Al-Qaeda guys are shooting radioactive bullets at our tanks. And so the meme, the actual physical information packet or physical conceptual information packet that contains this crazy story is capable of battening on both sides. Whereas you'd think with, with a lot of the things, you know, there are fascists on the battlefield. It depends whose who's side are the fascists. That's, that's an important equation. But with something like a mind control ray, it's a Ukrainian journalist talking about the Russians having a mind control ray. And what he's doing it as a metaphor for... You know, giving into the Russians is like giving up your, your, your independence again, going back to Soviet slavery. But the Russians, of course, you know, back to my old buddy Vladimir Zhirinovsky and the Elipton weapon, also have an interest in spreading notions that they have powerful mind control rays and resistance is futile. And so the, 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 the really crazy rumors seem to have sort of a life of their own and sort of float on the top of this informational war space in a way that I, I think is, it's, it's certainly more interesting because, as I mentioned, if you've ever studied the history of propaganda in war, it all pretty much falls into the very, very familiar pattern going back to, you know, World War One and even even before that. Well, the, the precedent for the whole uh, golden bullet thing, if you're telling your guys that, don't worry, we got golden bullets, uh, which will compensate for the fact that we're using assault rifles against tanks. Uh, you know, that that reminds me of the, the, the Ghost Dance Rebellion, where the... Uh, uh, people were convinced that they had bulletproof shirts. Now, that did not last past being shot at. Yeah. Uh, but again, that's a, a weird case of disinformation that for short-term gain rallies people to your side. But the, the downside risk of that, of course, is that as soon as that disinformation is palpably proven to be untrue, uh, you not only you know fail to achieve whatever your short-term goal is, but then you reduce your own credibility with your own side. So that it's like, well, they lied to us. They told us we had uh, golden bullets. Where's our damn golden bullets, man? But the, uh, the ghost shirt is an interesting version of this because the ghost shirt, in Central Africa, a lot of these militias uh, have uh, what they might be called Holy Spirit shirts. They might be called ghost shirts. It's a very common uh, pattern of belief that they have some magical ritual that makes them bulletproof. And these rituals, it's not like, I mean, you or I would think, okay, I can buy believing it once. You've grown up in this village. You're, 
your trusted uh, shaman uh, tells you that you know he's got a, a charm that will make you immune to bullets. You can go out and fight the village next door. I, I guess that makes sense. And then you and I would think, all right, but the first time you see someone shot, you're never believing in a ghost shirt again. But that's not how it works. There's always weird little exceptions, and there's always... You didn't believe in your ghost shirt hard enough, so you just got to believe harder. And I suspect a lot of us, they're fighting people who aren't very good shots. And so they charge into someone who isn't any good at using an assault rifle, and they are, you know, all the shots are going overhead, and maybe one or two are hitting someone on the arm instead of, you know, square in the, in the head. And you're like, these ghost shirts are awesome. This is the greatest ghost shirt ever. And so once you have that first experience, it's, it's like with astrologers. Once the astrologer has the first time said, you know, you're going to find uh, 20 bucks in the street and you find uh, 10, 10 bucks in the street. And you're like, well, that's practically right. That's exactly what the astrologer said. The astrologer can get everything wrong for, you know, years. And you're still bought into that one, you know, dopamine moment of, oh, my God, magic is real. And I think that the ghost shirt phenomenon happens in a lot of that same way within the communities that have the ghost shirt legendary. And this is why you keep seeing it coming up in Uganda and, and in these wars in Nigeria. They've got Boko Haram, among their other you know, useful uh, co contributions to society, have magic ghost shirts. And, and so there's, there's a, a sort of a concept that the ghost shirt is not, as you, you know, the, the Sioux Indians figured it out real fast, but a lot of other uh, societies spend a lot of time and cultural investment in the ghost shirt. And I know that it's a very, very common thing to show up in Marine Corps briefing if you're sending the, the troops into an area where these guys are, have got the ghost shirt mythology, that that is like front and center. That's like right up there. Uh, one of my uh, friends in the Marine Corps was in Liberia during the, the Civil War there, guarding the American embassy. And they had to shoot people who were, you know, charging the embassy. And part of their briefing is these guys think they're bulletproof. And again, this is the sort of thing where, on the one hand, it's just useful tactical doctrine to, to know that the guys think they're bulletproof. But also, it helps you sort of not so much dehumanize the, the, the foe, but it lets you other the foe in the sense that these primitive you know, screwheads think that they're bulletproof because they have magic shirts. Let's show them different. But the myth of the magic shirt is still there. Right. And, and of course, it's the ones whose bulletproof shirts are working are the ones who mm -hmm. return to camp to tell the story. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, my bulletproof shirt worked. <laughs> I, was uh, I believed hard enough. Yes. Um, but, but, but again, the myth of the ghost shirt sort of floats up there regardless of whether it's being spread by the, by the you know, local sorcerer or whether it's being spread by you know, the U.S. Marine Corps official briefing on fighting this particular militia somewhere in Central Africa. And so that sort of raises the interesting prospect in a game that departs from our reality and introduces supernatural <laughs> elements is... There's an idea. We should, we should market one. Yes, that exactly. That would be a good idea. So if you have a world where magic exists, but sometimes it's a hoax, uh, that creates doubt in the mind of, you know, the player characters have been given... Uh, ghost shirts and told to go fight the enemy and uh, or they, they have the enemy coming for them and they think oh maybe the ghost shirts will work mm -hmm. and uh, that will you know cause uh, fear and uh, there's a whole prospect of you know if you're doing an adventure or an investigation scenario in a place where there's an ongoing conflict and it's generating all this disinformation that may be unrelated to the coven of witches that you're trying to track down, or it might not, so that you have to then, you know, rule out which of the crazy rumors are just plain crazy as we can dismiss them in our reality, and which ones might actually work within the genre confines of uh, whatever uh, the GM has set up or not. 
Yeah, in, in this uh, in, in this Ukrainian situation that we were talking about, if this was a Knights Black Agents scenario introduction, and then the guys have you know seen a couple of vampires and they know that there's something supernatural going on, but they don't know enough, which is what ideally the majority of Knights Black Agents is going to be. You can tell them, you know, with a straight face. Well, there's a lot of chatter going on. You've sort of sorted out some of these. Seem to be you know repeated enough that they are either being driven by official organs of propaganda or they're actually going on. There are rumors that. The shadowy bad guys are, are going after kindergartens for some reason. Maybe that's connected to the thing where vampires like to drink young blood to stay immortal. Well, for a mind control ray, that's yeah. just a vampire lying down in the back of a truck. Ex- exactly. And the mind control ray, as I was, as I was going to say, is exactly the sort of thing where you tell them, oh, and there's rumors of a mind control ray. <laughs> and the players are like, yeah, right, rumors. We know what's going on. There's a, there's a brain vampire out there, and we have to go find him. And one of the great things about a game where magic is deniable or dubious or doesn't always work is that it does come down onto the players to individually decide, do I want to wear a ghost shirt or do I not want to wear a ghost shirt? If a guy's coming after me with a ghost shirt, am I going to take the the plus two to difficulty to shoot him in the head? (laughs) Because that maybe I'll miss him and then he'll get a ghost shirt morale bonus or something. This is terrible. Well, I think we've uh, spread a lot of information to uh, go with uh, everyone else's disinformation and can therefore move on to our change of pace next interview segment. Here in uh, beautiful sunny Provence, as the uh, leaves rustle and the uh, highway roars in the uh, background, and I'm here talking to Jeff Richard of Moon Design. Jeff, for those who do not know uh, what Moon Design is and what it does, uh, can you give us the quick 101? Sure thing, Robin. Uh, Moon Design is the publisher of Glorantha, the guide to Glorantha, HeroQuest, and Glorantha-related products, and it's part of that family of Chiasium children companies like uh, such as uh, Design Mechanism, who's the publisher of RuneQuest. But we basically do all things Garantha and HeroQuest. And HeroQuest. And speaking of HeroQuest, uh, you are just on the edge of getting out of the underworld bearing a massive sledge full of uh, six kilo kickstarted products. Absolutely! Now, is it it's six kilos or twelve kilos? It's six kilos. The Guide to Glorantha, uh, which was our big Kickstarter project, is at the printers right now. And we've worked out the weight of the two volumes that this monster uh, encompasses. So it's three kilos each. Three kilos each. Plus uh, a 128-page independent atlas of some unspecified amount of weight that... It's clearly smaller than three kilos. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's back up yet again uh, for listeners who do not know why uh, what Glorantha is. Uh, what is uh, this fantasy world that you can fill six-plus kilos full of information with and still probably not even be done? Glorantha is the creation of Greg Stafford, and it is a Bronze Age setting that is based 
Uh, its foundation is mythology and the relationship between uh, men and gods. And that's pretty much well, the core theme of Glorantha. Uh, I think, uh, uh, I don't know if it was you or... There's certainly some gaming luminary who, who described it as, uh, whereas Middle-earth is the creation of a linguist, Glorantha is the uh, fantasy setting created by a mythologist. And uh, Glorantha has been around for over 40 years. It was uh, the setting for a board game back in the 70s called White Bear Red Moon and later Dragon Pass. And then became the core setting for the RuneQuest role-playing game system. Uh, and then later uh, became the was used as the setting for the computer game that you worked on with David Dunham, King of Dragon Pass. And is the primary setting for the HeroQuest rules. So... It's a uh, also which some dude which some dude really named Robin Laws had some small primary involvement in. And so, uh, when did you first uh, get turned on to Glorantha as a gamer? What was the moment that made you think this is an interesting thing that you wanted to, to uh, experience more of? I first got into Glorantha around 1980, 1981. Uh, I had been playing uh, first edition Dungeons and Dragons with my regular group, and uh, one of the guys in the group brought this uh, rules book called RuneQuest to it and said, guys, 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 we've got to stop playing D&D. There's this new game that I've picked up called RuneQuest, and we can play were pigs, we can play uh, were pigs, and we can play uh, uh, were bears, and it's. Uh, it was all, clever, Greg, to cater to that uh, unspoken to were pig. <laughs> the, the giant were pig uh, uh, constituency, and uh, uh, and then he, uh, the we also then picked up the the board game White Bear Red Moon, and we were just hooked. I think I've been playing or reading or exploring Glorantha uh, since then. Never, never looked back. Okay, so I guess now we've got enough background uh, to start talking about the incredible process that is putting together the guide to Glorantha. You've described this as a project which is 40 years in the making. Yes. But that uh, includes all of Greg's creating the original world. Uh, the actual inception of this particular version of this much longed for uh, product, uh, which is uh, jaw-droppingly uh, stunning, not only in its size, but its uh, uh, beauty and comprehensiveness, the sort of thing that, you know, if uh, you told 13-year-old Robin or 13-year-old Jeff that this thing was going to exist one day, those uh, ancient time travelers would not have uh, believed us. How did this uh, start coming together for you now. The after I uh, finished doing uh, Sartar, I think it was after the Sartar Companion. I started pulling together uh, uh, material to update the classic 1988-1989 introduction to Glorantha. The the Glorantha box set, which um, in the 40 years of Glorantha has basically been the only overview that had been accessible to gamers that covered the whole world, although not in very much depth. And so I started on the process of, of updating that. And two years ago, 
I had a draft that I think would have come out to about a 350-page, 400-page book. And Greg, Greg had suggested, well, why don't we kickstart this to see if we can raise the production values from a regular 8.5-inch by 11-inch book to being an oversized coffee table book. And the printing costs are much more significant on a coffee table book. And we, we wanted to figure out, well, is there really much of a, a market or an interest in this sort of, of oversized, non-gaming gaming book? Because there's no, we're no, there was no rules in this. There was no supplements or, or ordinary gaming material in this. And if we were going to go and have the capital outlay for a, a coffee table book, we needed to have some sort of a mechanism to gauge the interest in it. So we threw a Kickstarter there, hoping optimistically to get somewhere around $50,000, $60,000. later, uh, we managed to build into the Kickstarter funding to do everything Greg or I ever wanted to be able to do in a, an overview of Glorantha. For example... For example, rather than simply have a beautiful detailed map of the northern continent of Genertella, where most of the Glorantha campaigns people have run over the last 40 years have been set, we, can't, we agreed that we would do the same level of detail to the entire world and ultimately generated a map that, if fully printed out, would be 40 feet by 40 feet in size. We had several color plates ready with the before we did the Kickstarter and as part of the Kickstarter we made 16 full color Osprey style plates to illustrate the various cultures so we uh, Kickstarter enabled us to fund a massive expansion in the ability to describe the world and also to be able to give what I consider pretty lavish artistic treatment and that Increase the size of the book from about 350 pages to uh, 800 pages in an oversized format. So the process of uh, expanding the book, did this occur as a series of stretch goals? Yes. We, um, when we initially put the Kickstarter together, we thought, well, if the, the Kickstarter is more successful than we initi- initially expected... We'll build in some stretch goals of just uh, expanding the map to cover additional areas. And then as the Kickstarter continued to exceed our wildest hopes, we realized that this was the chance for us to add additional material that normally, in its own right, although interesting and cool, wouldn't be financially viable as a standalone book. And what would an example of that be? Adding additional detail to all of the East Isles, the far eastern portion of Glorantha, which is... And these have been... This is like the obscurest part of the world. It's not nothing that... Uh, the, probably the number of people who've run East Isles campaigns and the entire history of this, if you could count on the fingers of, of one hand, because in part there's very no. little material available on those. So it's like the far, far corners of the world where they're really super crazy stuff happens. Right. Not, no, we're not talking pig crazy. We're talking mystical... We're talking mystical, talking birds crazy. But wonderful stuff. And Greg has actually written a tremendous amount about the East Isles. But because only a handful of people had ever played in any sort of an East Isle campaign, 
there just wasn't a tremendous amount of, 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 from our perspective, we didn't think that there was a tremendous amount of market for that. But in a Kickstarter, it suddenly, it was, became financially viable to give these esoteric regions the same detailed treatment that the more familiar regions uh, of the setting like Dragon Pass or the Holy Country or Prax or Pavis. The, the sheer improbability of being able to uh, service that in obsessive desire to have everything became part of the fun of contributing to the project. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, it dramatically increased the amount of work that, that needed to be done. So that's my next question, is how uh, did you cope? Because you're part of the same generation of Kickstarters, essentially, that Hillfolk was. You came yep. a little bit later. Um, and the I think about three or four months later after right. uh, Hillfolk. So there's a temptation to add a lot of new material, but then when the Kickstarter closes, you can realize how much more work you've uh, signed up for than you initially planned. And you initially gave people a promise of when it was going to come out based on the earliest version of it without all that extra stuff in it. And even though people are mostly understanding, there's still a certain amount of pressure, if only self-induced or induced by two or three out of your thousands of backers, uh, to get that out and get that giant load off of your mind. So how did you, what did you discover about the process of adding all of that uh, material that uh, took you by surprise? Well, the, what ended up being most, the most logistically complicated part of fulfilling all of the, the pledges as we added to the, the Kickstarter was actually the volume of art because there's a limited, a relatively limited pool of artists that are very familiar with Glorantha. And we had some very, very, very talented uh, artists, Yann Pospisil. Who is uh, also the lead artist on Hillfolk. Who is also the lead artist on Hillfolk and one of the artists with uh, One Ring as well. Jeff Laubenstein, who was the FASA art director back for the original Shadowrun and Earthdawn. And he really defined the look of Earthdawn. And oh, absolutely. very distinctive and cool. It, but when you have an unexpected bounty of riches of going to Yan and saying, Yan, I need uh, 16 more full-color obsessive plates, which are probably the most detailed pieces that you've, you've ever worked on before. I need 16 more of them. <laughs> and, and that actually turned out to be really complicated because suddenly all these artists were very excited to work on this project, but they had an even bigger increase in their workload from this. Right, and I have a feeling that you were probably paying them uh, pretty well, but still the amount of detail and revision and need to uh, adhere to a a particular idea of how all of these zillions of different cultures worked. In Hillfolk, for example, uh, my art direction to Jan and everybody else was like, like two sentences was a long bit of uh, art direction. Um, and so uh, I suspect your process was somewhat different. Uh, yes, with Jan and Jeff and, and also Mike Perry, who did a tremendous number of beautiful pictures for us. Usually for any picture, I would write somewhere between two and three pages of detailed art direction with scores, not dozens, scores of reference images of this is what a sword should, this is what a certain character figure's sword should look like. This is what a 
Illyrian-style Illurian, helmet is. These are how the feathers in a helmet should look. It, because Glorantha is a Bronze Age setting, it has a very non-traditional fantasy look in terms of armor, in terms of clothing. And we wanted to make it for the first time to be able to have the artists describe it instead of being really reliant upon any one real-world culture. So in, traditionally what would be done is shorthand for the artists is the Orlanthi looks sort of like Celts or Vikings or some vaguely bar- barbaric people. But in truth, that was never the way Greg or I imagined that the Orlanthi should look. We, with the guide, because we were paying the artists uh, a very decent amount, we were able to give them huge amounts of art direction and reference to make the Im- the images exactly what we wanted them to be. And was there a particular uh, image that you can think of that came back as meeting everything that you asked for, but also, uh, you know, knocked your socks off in, in a way of, of showing you more than you expected? You know, it's a shame that podcasts are a purely audio uh, audio experience because I I have exactly the image that yeah after you describe might. a picture I'm going to ask you to describe a smell so just... <laughs> there is one of the areas of Glorantha is uh, uh, called Fonrit and in Fonrit is uh, a region defined by slavery and in Fonrit virtually everyone is a slave of somebody and often there are slaves maybe slaves of a slave and the lowest cased, uh, historically, it, it, it was an area of blue-skinned people that ended up being conquered by a group of Dorati, darker-skinned people, who had gained great magic in order to become the rulers of a region. But you have people with these beautifully distinct, uh, distinct in, we don't have blue people in the real world. And I, or, or so they want us to believe. Or so they want us to believe. And there are some people with green skin as well, and, and wonderfully he, different hues uh, of the, the various groups of people there. And I had Jan Pospisil put together a, a piece showing this off, and it's a beautiful piece. And it has this blue-skinned warrior in this bronze panoply of armor, and I didn't actually have any idea what the color palette of these various fantasy peoples would actually look like when you you truly did a color image of this. And it just absolutely knocked my socks off. It's one of my favorite pictures in the the whole guide. And and if you go to the Glorantha.com website, we have a gallery of all of uh, Jan Pospisil's plates there, and just look. Scroll through it until you find the one that has a blue-skinned warrior. Uh, so if anyone uh, happened to miss the Kickstarter and uh, uh, wants to own this incredibly lavish, probably once-in-a-lifetime uh, product, uh, is it going to be in retail? Is it just going to be available from Glorantha.com? How do people get a hold of it once it uh, We are going... Uh, our, our plan is to only sell it through the Glorantha.com website because we we think that there is the we have the opportunity to be able to do a direct direct sales for this book to the customer 
rather than go through distribution because game stores aren't terribly interested in a six kilogram giant encyclopedia that can't fit on most of their shelves. Right, and once and if they were to um, go through distribution and uh, add their own pricing on it, basically the retail price would go up by well, the, your retail price would be forty percent, and you have to add another sixty percent on on top absolutely. Of that. Uh, will it be at shows like Gen Con? Yes. Uh, we will have at this year at Gen Con, we will have uh, the Guide to Glorantha for sale there, along with the Atlas of the entire world. Because in addition to the two-volume set, we made a, a uh, atlas uh, in the style of the Michelin atlases or the, the AA atlases. So every page is just a plate of this giant 40-by-40-foot 40 40 map. And that comes out to being 128 pages of color maps of the world. That will be for sale as well at uh, Gen Con. And uh, I think we will also bring, be bringing poster-sized maps of various places where people can purchase. And I think we will also have it for sale for those of you in Europe. We'll have it, be bringing uh, copies of it to Essen Spiel in Essen. Uh, well, I hear uh, angry birds uh, overhead, and I'm afraid that they may have come from the East Isles to uh, peck out our eyes. So ah! it's time to uh, head for shelter. So thanks a lot, Jeff, for talking to thanks, us. Thanks, Robin. The portrait of Madame Blavatsky that glowers down at us as we creak our way up the cobwebby stairs into the parlor of the Consulting Occultist tells us that, yes, it's the parlor of the Consulting Occultist. And this week, in any other podcast, the Consulting Occultist might be accused of having an ulterior motive because he's just finished a double bumper, two-part epic edition of Ken Writes About Stuff. But in this podcast, we cannot even contemplate that such uh, underhanded motives could uh, go into play. And, and purely for informational and not plugging purposes, uh, Ken, how did you happen to decide that now is the time to tackle voodoo in your Ken Writes About Stuff subscription series available now from Pelgrane Press? Well, Simon Rogers, the beloved and uh, all-wise publisher of Pelgrane, and I were talking about Ken Writes About Stuff, and he suggested, because uh, the gumshoe zooms in which I look at specific sorts of things you might drop into your game and present them in as close to Gumshoe Gets as rules-neutral uh, terminology so that you can put them in any of your games, he thought that real-world uh, occult and magical traditions might be a, a profitable sort of a topic for a bunch of Gumshoe Zooms. And, of course, he was right. And the uh, first one that we agreed might be uh, the most uh, interesting to do was Voodoo. And the tactical mistake there, of course, is that Voodoo, being one of the most interesting and one of the most compelling and one of the most uh, variegated and detail-rich magical traditions, because A, it's ongoing, it's three centuries old, it spans, you know, 15 or, or, or two dozen countries, depending on how you, exactly you define it. It's, it's got stretched. a whole bunch of different branches and options. It's got a whole bunch of different branches and options and versions, and every one of those bits is interesting and 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 um uh and provides really strong gameability gameable possibilities and so what began as a one you know somewhat fat gumshoe zoom became two ken writes about stuffs one is the rules of voodoo and the one coming the next month is a list of or not a list a bunch of 
voodoo invisibles, the, the great powers, the Loa in Haitian Vodo, uh, the Orishas in Santeria, or Orishas with an X in Candomblé, these sort of great spirits that exist between God and man that uh, one is possessed by to get not just, you know, uh, numinous religious uh, epiphany and communion, but also uh, some sort of, of boost to your abilities in a, in a, in a role-playing game or to get access to magic in, in general. In the larger uh, magical system, which you can call voodoo, to be distinct from the Haitian religion, which is also called voodoo, but is spelled V-O-D-O-U by Haitian Creole now, to mostly to prevent it from being confused with the sort of um, uh, cartoon uh, voodoo dolls and zombies and, and stuff like that that comes out of the 1920s and 30s when uh, that, that sort of entered pop culture and, and stuck there in a, in a, in a big way. So to, to zoom back out again, speaking of zooms, what would you define as the thing that makes one of these connected traditions voodoo and, and what makes it not? What are the core ingredients of the voodoo tradition? The voodoo magical tradition, and again, I want to emphasize that this is the magical tradition that underlies pretty much the whole Afro-Caribbean religious complex and is no more or less the religion than praying, uh, than, than, than having a, a, a lucky uh, saint's medallion is the religion of Christianity. They're, they're allied, they're part of the same culture, but they're not the same thing. But the, uh, the, the magical tradition of voodoo pretty much is a blend of sympathetic magic, as is, which is common in virtually all folk magic everywhere in the world, with the specific impetus that this magic is not just empowered by local spirits, again, which is true of pretty much every folk magic everywhere, but is also empowered by communion with these invisibles, these Loa, these uh, Orisha, whatever they happen to be, and that the existence of these specific entities, and they might be seen as actual entities like saints or angels, or they might be seen as reflections or aspects of the god, like in Kabbalah, where the individual spheres of the Tree of Life do not have any individual uh, agency. They're just ways you address God in his perspective of God-bringer of beauty or God-bringer of judgment. And then they also might be avatars or uh, pieces of God that have been incarnated, or in the case of spirits, not so much incarnated, but you know what I mean, uh, dropped down and given individuation, but that are not individual beings with their own agendas. And so, depending on which tradition you talk to, and of course, because voodoo has been... Uh, intermingled with not just Roman Catholicism, but also uh, spiritualism, our, our good old buddies, uh, the spiritualists here in the uh, consulting occultist offices. The There is no one answer as to what the invisibles are or how to approach them, but the need to approach the invisibles, the necessity of the invisibles' role in what's going on is what makes something voodoo as opposed to a different tradition. And that's why, for example, hoodoo, which is the folk magic of mostly the African-American experience is not voodoo because there's no possession component. There's no inter intercessory spirits component. Uh, hoodoo is, is a folk magic just like French folk magic or, or English cunning man folk magic or any of the folk magics that happen, you know, again, pretty much everywhere in the world, whereas voodoo involves the specific intercession and often, you know, is considered to be powered by these intermediate 
uh, entities, the, the Loa, the, the Invisibles. So when portraying voodoo in our games and stories, there is a, a tension between wanting to draw on the fun, cool imagery that emerged when this culture hit uh, pop culture in the 20s and 30s, but of course during the 20s and 30s that was uh, a time of high racism uh, in our culture, and so a lot of those portrayals are fun if you don't think about them too much, but also deeply disrespectful or even hateful. So how in the modern world do we ensure a portrayal of voodoo that is enjoyable on one hand, but keeps all of those uh, nasty, sticky elements at bay. I think there's two sort of really good ways to to do that in in a game context, and they can sort of go together. They can be uh, both part of your story. The first is to make sure that just like, you know, uh, clerics in fantasy, uh, they come in both good and evil kinds. So when you are going to Haiti in your Trail of Cthulhu game, or you're going into maybe the Jamaican neighborhood in Toronto in your Mutant City Blues game, or you're going after the Trinidadian Sukuyant vampires in a Knights Black Agents game, that you have not only this, you know, your opponents who are using voodoo uh, magic for their own nefarious ends, but also there are people in the community, possibly your allies, at, at the very least people you're protecting and involved with and care about the same way that you care about the NPCs in any properly run game that are using that, that magic or believing in that faith tradition that are good, that are, you know, your helpful clerics. So you may be sent after a, a Petro a Bokor who is engaging in some sort of horrible necromantic zombie magic in Trail of Cthulhu, but there's uh, the local Hungan who gives you uh, a healing bonus, or he gives you, you know, a, a magic, uh, a wanga, a charm that will counteract their fell influence. Some way where you can argue that, yes, once again, just like in every single culture uh, that has a belief in magic, which is all of them, that there is both good magic, which is usually done by priests, which is to say people who are on our side and the side of the gods, and bad magic, which is done by people who are not on our side and not on the side of the gods. And obviously that feeds into the second part of it, which is that all of the Afro- Afro-Caribbean cultures, all of those religions, have their own beliefs that there are black magicians out there, and in the sense of practicing evil magic, not a racial coloring thing, because they use that same terminology. For example, in the same way that uh, the Catholic you know, peasants in Europe believe that there were both you know, good priests who do good miracles and bad witches who uh, work for Satan. You go to any given tradition. Uh, most indigenous cultures uh, separate shamans uh, who are good and sorcerers who are bad. Exactly. And if you go into any of these given um, Afro-Caribbean religious traditions, if you go to, say, Santeria in Cuba, and you go uh, to the, the guys who are practicing Santeria, and they say, oh, yeah, we know all about black magic, and don't worry, our you know relationship with the Orishas is good enough to keep us all protected from it, and if you get into a curse, you just come back by and we'll heal you up. But it's those Palo Meombe guys that are doing all the black magic. Those are the guys you got to watch out for. And then if you go to the Palo community, the regular de Palo, as it's called, and you say, hey, I've heard you guys are the black magic guys. And they say, oh, yeah, we get that a lot from the Santeria guys. They're just prejudiced against us. But what they're talking about are the, the Hudio tradition, the Mayombe Hudio, meaning unbaptized Mayombe or unbaptized magic. Those are the guys you got to watch out for. And... Each one of the traditions has a sub-tradition within it that they point to and say, those are the bad guys, and often you go into that tradition, and they say, yeah, we're, we're tougher than they are, and that's what they think means bad, but if you're talking about actual evil, 
there's this other sub-sub-tradition that's the evil guys. And you can basically keep going as far down that rabbit hole as you want to, but it's usually enough in a game to have not all voodoo or not all Haitian uh, believers in in the religion voodoo be indistinguishable zombie-making bad guys, but to say within that religious tradition there is a belief that there are certain rights that are bad news rights. And you can go to Haiti now and you can say, is there black magic? And they will say, we don't practice it, and yes, there absolutely is. And usually they'll blame the secret societies of sorcerers, the, the Zobops, or the uh, uh, Vlinden Blingingwees, or there's a whole bunch of, of great secret societies of sorcerers that, are, that show up in the Voodoo Zoom, uh, because that's where they belong. And speaking of uh, disinformation, demoralization, the dreaded Tauntaun Makut exactly. militia were reputed to have uh, supernatural powers. Because the Makut is the bag that they would carry, and they carried them to indicate that they were rural good people uh, who carry cloth bags, not uh, rich fancy folk who have servants to carry things. But the bag is also the thing that holds a magic power in uh, in voodoo magic. It, it, a Makut is one of the terms for a wanga or a paquette or a hand. In voodoo, you call it a conjure hand. But that kind of of uh, of existence of of a bag full of magic is is one of the things that is it was previously associated with these uh sorcerous secret societies and then when Duvalier takes the bag and uses it as the emblem of his militia for political reasons his opponents could say ah I know why they're really carrying bags it's not because they're good country folk like us it's because they're zobops they're evil cannibal sorcerers and then Duvalier of course being a evil dictator is not the kind of guy to say, no, my guys are just friendly cuddlebugs. They're not evil sorcerers. Yeah, I'm not going to leave that propaganda value on the table. In, in, in the same sort of way where, you know, um, uh, when uh, Himmler is putting things on the front of the SS hat, he's like, well, I know that the skull just means obedience unto death, but what if my enemies are, are scared of it and think it means that we're powerful death bringers? Oh, that would be terrible. I don't want that to happen. No, he loves the skull. He's, he's all about the skull. So, yeah, the, uh, the, the encouragement of your foes believing that you have black magic can begin as harmless sort of self-inflating propaganda, but it rapidly becomes um, uh, part of the legend that accretes into this you know, belief system. In the same way that people were saying that um, uh, when they would walk past the Ceausescu's palace in Bucharest, they would all sort of you know, shiver and, and huddle up even if it was a super hot day outside because the belief was that Satan lives in a big plain of ice and so it's always cold around the devil. And so they would shiver whenever they walked past the Ceausescu's palace because he was, you know, f full of, you know, evil. Well, uh, obviously this is a, a huge topic and one that we can uh, revisit uh, smaller slices of in upcoming episodes. But other than... Uh, obviously, starting with your exciting two-parter on voodoo, what are sort of a few core sources that you could recommend to people who want to explore this in greater depth before we get to it again? In uh, the 1930s, there was a anthropologist named Zora Neale Hurston, and she was sort of a self-trained ethnologist and folklorist. She went around the South and, and uh, picked up uh, folk stories and, and songs and did that kind of thing, and then went to Haiti to investigate voodoo, because she was interested in the truth behind the crazy, uh, superstitious nonsense that William Seabrook had published in The Magic Island, which is a great example of sort of 1920s pop culture voodoo uh, in all of its uh, good and bad. And she went down to Haiti and wrote a book called Tell My Horse, which was about her investigation into voodoo. And then after her, in the 50s, there were two anthropologists 
or people who are interested in anthropology. I don't know if Maya Darren, for example, had an actual academic background, but uh, Maya Darren, who is also uh, well known as a as a um, experimental filmmaker, she uh, her early experimental films were basically the template for music videos, uh, mm -hmm. even before Kenneth Anger's were right. And uh, so she uh, went down and did a really good, again, not so much a, a formal ethnography, but at least an investigation of voodoo called Divine Horseman. And another guy named Alfred Metro wrote a really good book called Voodoo in Haiti, both of which are, uh, pro are the product of, you know, the better part of a year or several years spent in Haiti, you know, going around and talking to people and just asking them, what do you think about this? What's going on with this? Why does your altar do this and not that? And just assembling all of that. And it, the result is really readable. It's very, very vibrant and interesting. It's sort of voodoo right before the postmodern New Age movement gets a hold of it and starts ringing its changes in it. Uh, Haitian voodoo at that point was very little influenced by spiritualism. It was mostly influenced by the only occult tradition it had really been inf influenced by was French grimoire magic, which was brought, first of all, by the French colonizers and then imported into the Caribbean when Chicago publishers began to uh, pirate those grimoires and sell them as, as magic books for people practicing all kinds of magic. And because they were recognized titles and because they were marketed into African-American uh, communities, the Haitians and Jamaicans and Trinidadians would buy those books and use them as part of their magical tradition. But the point is that Darren and Metro are both writing intelligent, rigorous works for the lay reader who is interested in the topic. And although they're by now 60 and 70 years old, they're still, you know, they're, they're respectful. They're, they're, uh, absolutely, you know, historically valid. No one has come back and said, Oh, Metro was wrong or Darren was wrong. This, what didn't actually happen. Obviously the practice of, of voodoo has, has changed considerably in the last uh, 80 years or whatever it is. Syncretic traditions are like that. They are like that. Well, everything is like that. If, if you'd gone into Kansas in 1950 and come out with a big book about how Baptists are, it, you could take that same book back to Kansas and see just the same number of changes. Maybe a little less because, again, Christianity has a scripture and voodoo doesn't. But there's, there, there's, a, there's an ongoing process of change in any living religion that is just the way that the world works. But Metro's book and uh, Maya Darren's book are both really good. They're both really well written. And the good thing about them is if you're running Trail of Cthulhu or something else set in the 30s, 40s, 20s, those will be good windows into how that voodoo tradition was being practiced. If you're trying to look at a more uh, postmodern game, it's a modern-day Knights Black Agent spy thriller, and you're in Cuba, you know, trying to infiltrate the Palo Mayombe, then you may, you know, find that that's less useful to you. But uh, I think that those two will give you a good, strong grounding on both the theology and the uh, occultism that are the key aspects of, of the religion and the magic belief. Well, uh, having given people a bibliography, I think that's a sign that we've reached the end of the book that is our podcast, and it's time to wrap things up. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Protect yourself from free will suppression rays by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff com. Join such illustrious patrons as Joshua Sokol, Dan Noland, and Jeremy French. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, podcast, or LOA by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>